Good morning. So we are continuing our series now of knowing Jesus through the Old Testament. So we're back to our handouts. If you like handouts, we got fill in the blanks. If you're a little OCD and you miss a blank, they're posted at the front and the back of the sanctuary. And if you miss some, they're uh, at the back table there. You can pick up uh, after the service. We'll be continuing this series for some time. So we're in a section of knowing Jesus through the Old Testament where we're trying to know Jesus through the Old Testament law. This is the hardest section of the Old Testament to find Jesus in because the Old Testament law says crazy stuff that we don't relate to very well. For instance, the Old Testament law says if you're in the people of God, you will not trim the hair of your beard. So if you're in the millennial generation, you got that down. You haven't trimmed your beard in quite some time. But for those of us who grew up in the 90s and tried to have the hoodie and the blowfish goatee, evidently that was naughty. Um, Also, for bad news for Gen Xers, it says you shall not mark your skin with tattoos. But millennials are not off the the, uh, hot seat because it also says if you're the people of God, you will not trim the hair on the sides of your head. So if you have that thing where your hair is really short here and floppy on top, You're out of there, according to the Old Testament law. Now, some of you are saying, now, Garrett, you're trimming the hair on the sides of your head, clearly, but that's because with my hairline, I don't want to look like Riff Raff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show (laughs) or Gollum from Lord of the Rings. So that's why we trim our hairs as precious. All right. Uh, The Old Testament law also says, uh, has food laws, right, that we don't like too much. Can't eat lobster? What? Can't eat shrimp? Can't eat... Ham? Can't eat bacon? Why even go on living? And it also has animal sacrifice for the remission of sins. So so we don't do a lot of Old Testament law stuff. In fact, we even have some New Testament passages that tell us not to. Look at uh, Galatians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul writes, If you're trying to make yourself right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. Great, that seems to make it really easy then. Let's stop doing the Old Testament law and let's move on. Except if you turn to Matthew chapter 5, you can find Jesus himself saying stuff like this. Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, okay. So now it looks like maybe the New Testament is self-contradictory. Paul says one thing, Jesus says another, we're supposed to pick. Except, let me read you this passage from Paul. This is the same guy who wrote the first verse I read about you're cut off from Christ if you follow the law. Same writer, listen to what he writes in Romans chapter 3. He says, well then, if we emphasize faith, does that mean we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Oh boy, it's getting hard. It's getting hard. Something's going on with this law. Something's going on with this law and we need to understand what it is so we don't make a big mistake. Because we might say, well, we got a couple of passages here that say don't obey the law, let's quit doing the Old Testament law. But what if Jesus said you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven if you take away the least part of this law? That could be bad. 
well, okay, why don't we do the Old Testament law? Let's get real strict. Grow that hair out. Quit trimming that beard. I don't know what you're going to do about the tattoos. Um, except that then we have these other passages that say if you're trying to follow that Old Testament law, you could be cut off from Christ. This is very hard. So let's not leave today in confusion. Let's not go and make a quick decision on this. Let's go slow, and let's find out what's going on with Jesus and the Old Testament law. First thing I want to say is the Old Testament law is promoting something called holiness. What is the definition of holiness? Let me tell you what it's not. It's not moral perfection. Most English speakers translate holiness perfect or moral perfection, and uh, that's not a great translation of what they were doing with holiness. Here's what it is. It's being different from the world. It means to be separate. It means being different from most of culture. It means having different values. It means living a different way. Holiness means living God's way. In short, the Old Testament law of holiness is teaching us to imitate God. Now, when I first became a follower of Jesus in my 20s, I was more than ready for something different from this culture. Uh, Having spent my younger childhood, first through third grade, in a home with many alcoholics and many drug users, and spending summer holidays in that same environment until I was 18, by the time I was in my 20s, I was ready to be far far away from that environment. And that's why I loved Project Star. Students taught awareness and resistance. How many of you are disciples of Ewing Kaufman and Project Star? Don't feel bad. It only lasted a few years. How many of you graduated from the D.A.R.E. program? Okay, same thing three years later. All right. So I love Project Star. I love D.A.R.E. because Because in sixth grade, all my friends, we all signed a piece of paper that we would not become alcoholics and drug users when we got into high school. And I looked around and everyone had signed it and I was so relieved. A few years later, I found out that most of my friends had lied. I, in fact, only had one friend for the rest of my life that I could really count on to stick to that. And wouldn't you know it, he also had alcoholic family members. So in our 20s, when my friend and I, we heard there were these followers of Jesus, and they they don't get drunk, or they they don't use drugs, we were very excited to sign on to that, for that reason, if, if not for some other reasons. So we did. Of course, in the intervening years, uh, we learned that church people don't do what they're supposed to very much better than high school people do. So I spent a lot of time during those years judging people and being disappointed. If I had been alive at the time of the New Testament, I would have made an excellent Pharisee. Pharisees were a uh, political party and a group of religious priests, and they believed that if everyone in their country would just read God's law and do what it says, that God would save them from their enemies and bring them a whole new world. The Pharisees believed that Jews should live holy, that Jews should live like Jews, and that that should look different than pagans, especially Romans. Now, Jesus, we know, if you read the New Testament, got into lots of fights with Pharisees. You can't turn two pages of the New Testament without finding Jesus fighting with Pharisees over what it means to be holy. So that leaves a lot of us in the room. You may have the impression this morning that Jesus was against everything the Pharisees were for. But that is not entirely accurate. Jesus and the Pharisees agreed on several important points. Three of them we'll mention here. Jesus and the Pharisees both had a consuming desire that God's people be holy and that they live differently than people who don't follow God. 
Jesus and the Pharisees both loved the Old Testament scriptures, both the law and the prophets. Everything that today we call the Old Testament, Jesus and the Pharisees both called Holy Scripture. And Jesus and the Pharisees both felt that imitating God was what really fuels moral behavior. That the reason we do things or the reason we don't do things is because God would do it or because God wouldn't do it. And to this day, I don't believe that God and Jesus would get together with their best friends and get married, tipsy, or drunk such that the real them and full control of words and actions isn't present anymore. You may say, Garrett, if you wanted to run from alcohol, why did you join a Presbyterian church that comes from Have Another Pint Scotland? So, <laughs> I wonder that myself sometimes, but uh, I've learned the difference between drinking and drunkenness. And I don't think that drunkenness is how the people of God should socialize even today. But Jesus and the Pharisees disagreed on at least one very important point. For the Pharisees, the most important part of the law was the way it separated them socially from pagans, especially Romans, because it created this tight system of religious rules that truthfully not very many Jews wanted to follow, but no pagans were interested in at all. And that separation was the most important thing to the Pharisees. But for Jesus, on the other hand, he thought that the principal attribute of God's holiness to be imitated was his mercy. God's lack of discrimination when it came to foreigners, when it came to outsiders, the way he forgave sins and overlooked offenses. The mercy of God, Jesus thought, was what you should imitate first. Now, where did Jesus get that kind of an idea? It turns out he got it from the Old Testament law. So before this message is over, we're going to read about a third of Leviticus chapter 19. But Leviticus chapter 19 starts out this way. Give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then it contains all the sorts of stuff that if you think about what you expect Leviticus to contain, if you know the, uh, the uh, reputation of this book, this is what you find in chapter 19. Stuff like, do not eat meat that has not been drained of its blood. Do not practice fortune-telling or witchcraft. Do not trim off the hair on the sides of your temples or trim your beards. Do not cut your bodies for the dead, and do not mark your skin with tattoos. I am the Lord. So those are the parts of the law that the Pharisees paid a lot of attention to. And there are reasons. Pagans drank blood from animals in order to get the life force from that animal into themselves. And Jews did not believe you could get the life force energy of something by drinking its blood. Therefore, Jews don't drink blood, and they would not eat dinner with pagans in case they might accidentally drink blood. Pagans practiced witchcraft in order to gain power over their circumstances. But Jews believed the only true power came from God, so they don't visit fortune tellers or tarot card readings. Uh, Pagans, especially in Egypt, and remember Leviticus came right on the heels of the Egyptian empire. They cut their hair off the sides of their head and trimmed their beards down as a devotion to Egyptian gods, not for looks. It was a religious thing they were doing with the hairdos and the, and the face grooming. Um, Canaanites, who lived on the other side of Israel, they cut themselves and gave themselves ritual scars in order to attract the favor of fertility and blood gods. 
So it's even unclear in Hebrew whether it had tattoos at all because it just says in Hebrew to mark the skin. That might be scarring. That might be tattoos. It might be both. But in either case, it was for religious purposes, not for looks. And the Jews said, we don't show devotion to gods that way. And truthfully, for those acts, for those reasons, Jesus would agree with all of those laws. But when Jesus read Leviticus chapter 19, he also read the verses that came before and after those that are often overlooked. Like uh, same chapter, but verse 9. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Now that's interesting. Even though it's your crop, you planted it, you're doing the work of harvesting it, it says in order to imitate God, leave some around the edge and consider whatever fell on the ground by itself before you got there, an act of God, and just leave it. It says later, for the poor to come by and pick up later. Jesus also read verse 13. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not make your hired workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. Do not insult the deaf or cause the blind to stumble. You must fear your God. I am the Lord. Stand up in the presence of the elderly and show respect for the aged. Fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember, you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I want to read you what a Bible scholar Christopher Wright said about Leviticus 19. He said, we call stuff like this, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, we call stuff like this social ethics, or today we would say social justice. We call it human rights. We think we're so modern and civilized for doing that. We go to great lengths to get them written into declarations of this and charters for that and amendments to something else. Jesus just calls them holiness. And all through Leviticus 19 runs this refrain, I am the Lord, as if to say, you must behave this way because this is what I would do. Imitate me. Love your neighbor was not a radically new ethic invented by Jesus. It was a fundamental ethic of the Old Testament, which Jesus reaffirmed and in some cases sharpened. Love your neighbor was not a radically new ethic invented by Jesus. It was a fundamental ethic of the Old Testament with Jesus reaffirmed and in some cases sharpened. So where I went wrong in my 20s was not abstaining from alcohol. I still do that given my family background. Where I went wrong was abstaining from people who didn't yet own the values of imitating God. Let's get this clear. If I were an alcoholic, it would be wise for me to avoid people who get drunk. If I were a teenager or an adult who can't hang on to my values in the face of peer pressure, it would also be wise for me to avoid those types of settings. But I, tell the truth, I was not either of those things, not with my background. I didn't want to be around those kind of people because they disappointed me, they disgusted me, they made me uncomfortable and afraid, they reminded me of my childhood, and truth told in my heart, I didn't care much whether they came to Christ or not. I just didn't want them to be around. I pretended I was imitating the sobriety of Jesus, but God's sobriety is not his most important attribute to be imitated. 
The law also says God is merciful, so you must show mercy. Okay, we got to go carefully so we don't leave in misunderstanding. These laws about separation and living differently, they are still on the books. Jesus affirmed them. They are still in play. If you are still at a stage of life where you go along with the crowd, it doesn't matter if you're 17 or 70. If you get around a certain crowd of people and every time you wind up drunk, every time you wind up cussing and telling dirty jokes or making racist jokes, every time you're around them, you get into a fight. Every time you're around them, you commit a crime. You wind up in bed with someone you're not married to. You buy things you can't afford. You go out of town with this certain couple and you start swiping your plastic till that magnetic strip is glowing red. Every time you hang out with these people, you badmouth God and you badmouth the church and you espouse beliefs you would never espouse when you came back here amongst your people. If that's you, then you need a little more holiness and separation in your life. And you're wise if you keep it. And the people around you will not understand what you're doing. People in the church may not understand why you can and can't go do certain things with certain people. But you'll know why. And God will know why. And that's all that matters. Now, some of you who have a very tender and outreaching heart, you may say, well, how will those other people ever repent and turn to God if they don't see the goodness and love and acceptance of God in me? You're right. But it ain't going to work if you've got no difference to show them. Who's influencing who is what you have to ask. So uh, Mercy Street is our ministry on Saturday nights, every Saturday night at 5.30 for those with hurts, habits, and hang-ups. I try to attend every other week if I can. Every meeting we read this Bible verse from Galatians 6. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. If you believe you have to get drunk in order to reach out to drunks, you're gravely mistaken. And you're doing that for yourself so that you feel accepted and fit in. You are not bringing the image of God to them. If you believe you have to swear and use the type of language they use in order to be heard by them and taken seriously by them, watch out. You're not bringing God to them. They're driving God out of you little by little. Watch as it has already begun. Check yourself and ask, since you started that type of outreach, if you haven't become less loving, if your soul isn't more consumed by fear and aggression, the types of things you're posting, they're just a lot more snarky and aggressive than they used to be. Pretty soon you'll be saying that you need a break from the church and the people of God. And into their world you'll go. I hope just for a little while, but you may never come back. If you think that you have to take your business associates to strip clubs when they go in order to be able to witness to them. If you think you have to lie in business, you have to cheat in business in order to be there and excel and be part of the team in order to reach someone, you're not reaching them. Jesus came along to be among us, but he did not live like us. He kept the law, and he loved the law, and he loved the whole law. 
He also loved that part of the law that says that God reaches out to people who are cast out and left out and who sinned so badly they got themselves put out and marginalized. But he never came, became like them because what would that accomplish? It just lets them call us hypocrites. It just lets them say, see, I knew it. Holiness doesn't work. You get one of these so-called saints off by themselves and they'll say and do anything anyone else would do. They're liable to post anything. I knew it. Holiness isn't real. But let's not leave here confused. Yes, the laws of separation are there, but there's also the laws of mercy. So on the other hand, on the other hand, if your risk of temptation is low, that's a very important clause, if your risk of temptation is low, I feel like we ought to say this together so before we go on to this other point. So we're just going to say, if my risk of temptation is low, to make sure we've made a transition. Are you ready? If my risk of temptation is low, if the reason you're wanting to avoid those people is because they disgust you, and a little part of you hopes God will judge them harshly for their ignorance, then you and I need to check ourselves and ask, is this what God meant when he said, be holy as I am holy? Not just I don't hang out with you, but I'm quite a bit better than you, and I kind of hope something, you get what you have coming. Is that what God meant by be holy as I am holy? Don't forget that God made the people of Israel and eventually sent Jesus to show the world something different, another way. Here, Exodus chapter 19. You shall be for me a priestly kingdom, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. Uh, Listen to Leviticus 18. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not follow their statutes. Listen to Leviticus 20. You shall be holy to me for uh, for I, the Lord, am holy. And I have separated you from the other people to be mine. And I love Deuteronomy chapter 4. See, just as the Lord my God has charged me, now I teach you the statutes and ordinances for you to observe in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. You must observe them diligently, for this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people. For what other great nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is whenever we call to him? And what other great nation has statutes and ordinances as just as this entire law that I am setting before you today? And Jesus agreed with all of that. Listen to Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. The work each of us has to do today is ask in our various settings, where do I need a law of separation because I don't live differently? And where do I need a law of mercy because I do live differently and I'm just judging a bunch of people? Now, my stories were all about drinking because that was, you know, the 
tragedy of my childhood. But for you, it may be spending. For you, it may be racism. For you, it may be something to do with sexuality. Where do you need a law of holiness? Because you have trouble living differently. And where do you need a law of mercy? Because you have a light to share, but you're too stingy to share it. To help us try to understand that work, I want to share with you a story. It's called A Guy Named Bill. It was written by Rebecca Pippert, retold here by Alice Gray. His name is Bill. He has wild hair, wears a t-shirt with holes in it, jeans, and no shoes. This was literally his wardrobe for his entire four years of college. He's brilliant, kind of esoteric, very, very bright. He became a Christian while attending college. Across the street from campus is a well-dressed, very conservative church. They want to develop a ministry to the students, but they're not sure how to go about it. One day, Bill decides to go there. He walks in with no shoes, jeans, his t-shirt, and wild hair. The service has already started, and so Bill starts down the aisle looking for a seat. The church is completely packed, and he can't find a seat. By now, the people are looking a bit uncomfortable, but no one says anything. Bill gets closer and closer and closer to the pulpit. When he realizes there are no seats, he just squats right down on the carpet. Although perfectly acceptable behavior in a college fellowship, trust me, this has never happened in this church before. By now, the people are really uptight, and the tension in the air is thick. About this time, the minister realizes that from way at the back of the church, a deacon is slowly making his way forward to Bill. Now, the deacon is in his 80s. Silver gray hair, three-piece suit, a pocket watch. A godly man, very elegant, very dignified, very courtly. He walks with a cane. As he starts walking toward this boy, everyone is saying to themselves, you can't blame him for what he's going to do. How can you expect a man of his age and his background to understand some college kid on the floor? Takes a long time for the man to reach the boy. The church is utterly silent except for the clicking of the man's cane. All eyes focused on him. You can't even hear anyone breathing. The people are thinking the minister can't even preach until the deacon does what he has to do. And now they see the elderly man drop his cane on the floor. With great difficulty, he lowers himself and sits down next to Bill and worships with him so he won't be alone. Everyone chokes up with emotion. When the minister gains control, he says, what I'm about to preach, you'll never remember. What you've just seen, you'll never forget. In order to win the battle for the hearts and the minds and the values of this world, we'll need Jesus' heart and Jesus' tactics. We'll need Jesus' heart and Jesus' tactics to win the battle that we are in for the values of this world. Leviticus chapter 19. Give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holy separate and with a mercy that no one can match. We're going to finish our section of the series next week on knowing Jesus through the Old Testament law. 
Now, by now, we've given three messages on how Jesus upheld the law and stood for the law, and yet some of you know, I know there's parts of the law he didn't do because we don't do them anymore. We don't do food laws, and we don't do animal sacrifices, thank goodness. So what's up with that? So we will, we will find Jesus even in those laws next week, but we're going to have a slight title change. Next week will be Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, Why Jesus Broke the Law, and we'll find something of who he is even in, in that. So join us next week for that. I want to close today with one more sermon. Uh, one more sermon uh, illustration that uh, shows the imitating the mercy of God. Now, this sermon was first given to me in high school, ironically, by my public school history teacher. And he, he gave me this on cassette tape to take home and listen to. So there you go. And I've never forgotten this sermon and, and uh, and now it has become famous kind of around the world. It is a story about imitating God's mercy and bringing healing to the world through it. So I want to yield the remainder of my time to this message. Now I want to tell you there are two PG-13 words at the end of the message. So he's one of those preachers. And um, I have already cleared it with folks who do ministry to the community that he's talking about, and they've given it an enthusiastic thumbs up. Is it okay if we use these two words? This guy used these two words. They're pretty harsh. Folks who do the same type of ministry he's talking about said, yes, we love that sermon. So you don't need to feel uncomfortable for anyone. This has been cleared by all those affected. All right, now you're really wanting to know what this is going to say. All right, so let's find out together as we learn to imitate the, uh, the mercy of God from Tony Campolo. Let's watch together. If you go to Honolulu from the East Coast, those of you who have been there know that you wake up like at 3 o'clock in the morning and you can't get back to sleep. And I'm, I'm hungry. And I, I went looking for something to eat. And even at that wee hour of the morning in a bustling city like Honolulu, you can't find a place that's open. But up a side street, I did find a place. I went in, sat down on the stool... There was a greasy spoon, no booze, just a row of stools in front of the counter. And, and this fat guy with a dirty, filthy, greasy apron came out, pulled his cigar out, put it down, and said, what do you want? I didn't touch the menu. It was one of those plastic menus that grease had piled up on it. And I knew that if I opened it, something extraterrestrial would crawl out. And so like a cup of coffee and a donut. So he poured the coffee, and then he did this. And he picked up the donut. <laughs> I hate that. So I'm sitting there, 3.30 in the morning, drinking my coffee and eating this dirty donut. Into the room come about eight or nine prostitutes, and they sat down on either side of me. And I tried to disappear. And the one on my immediate right, said, tomorrow's my birthday, she said to her friend. I'm going to be 39. Her friend said, so what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday? You want a cake? What, do you, what should we do? Have a party for you? You're going to be 39. First woman said, look, I don't, I'm not expecting anything. I just, why do you have to put me down? And then she said, with a crack in her voice, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. That did it. I waited till you know, till they all left, and I was the only one left. I called 
Harry over. I said, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah. I said, the one next to me? He said, Agnes. I said, tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say we decorate the place? And when she comes in tomorrow, we have a birthday party for her because I heard her say she's never had a birthday party in her whole life. He said, mister, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Jane, he called his wife out of the back room. She did the cooking. He wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. I thought, jeez, this is great. She comes out. She grabs my hand. She says, mister, you wouldn't understand this because of what she does, you know. But she's one of the kind people in this town. She's one of the caring people in this town. I said, uh, look, can I, can I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a birthday cake. Harry said, oh, no, the cake's my thing. I thought, oh, jeez, you know. <laughs> so I got there the next morning. I got there the next morning at about 2.30. I had bought crepe paper at the Kmart, strung it across the plate, place, made a big sign that said, happy birthday, Agnes, put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place spruced. Jane, who does the cooking, got the word out on the street so that by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this place. I mean, people, it was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. (laughs) 3.30 in the morning, the door opens. In comes Agnes and her friends. I got everybody poised, everybody ready. The minute she walked through the door, we yell, Happy birthday, Agnes, and all start cheering like mad. I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her knees buckled. They steadied her and got her and sat her down on a chair. And We started singing, happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday, dear Agnes. And when they brought out the cake, she lost it and started to cry. Harry just stood there with the cake and finally he said, all right, Agnes, knock it off. (laughs) Blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. She tried and she couldn't, so he blew out the candles and handed her the knife and said, now cut the cake. Come on now, cut the cake. She sat there for a long moment, and then she said to me, is it all right if I don't cut the cake? She said, what I'd really like to do is take the cake home and show it to my mother. I said, it's your cake. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake home. I'll bring it right back. I promise. She picked up the cake. She pushed through the crowd and out the door. And as the door swung slowly shut, dead silence. The whole group was stunned. I didn't know what to say. Finally, after a few uneasy moments, I said, what do you say we pray? It's weird looking back on it now. A sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in a diner in Honolulu was the right thing to do, and I prayed that God would deliver her from what dirty, filthy men had done to her, usually starting like it, you know, when they're about 12 or 13, and, and then they're ruined and hurt. And when I finished praying that God would make her new, that God would give her back everything that had been taken from her, I said amen and lifted my eyes, and Harry was right in my face. He said, hey, Camp Paulo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you belong to? And one of those moments when you come up with just the right words, 
I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. I thought that was a clever answer. I'll never forget his response. He looked back and he said, no, you don't. No, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church that threw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? I got news for you. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. He came to create a church that was filled with people that move out into the world and bring celebration and joy into the lives of those who have nothing to celebrate and have no joy, to bring celebration to those who are brokenhearted and beaten down, to lift them up and give them some joy in their life. That's what you are called to do. You are called to be agents of God, to spread His love and His joy into a loveless and joyless world. That's what you're called to do. And if you surrender to Christ and let Him cleanse you and let the Spirit fill within you, His Spirit will constrain you, says Scripture, constrain you, drive you to do loving and joyful things in a world devoid of joy and love. Do you hear me? I hear you. So at this time, I'd like to welcome Christy Childs and any other members from the board, the organization, Magdalene KC, or Veronica's Voice coming up. You don't want her to be by herself up here. It's so, so sad. Come on up if uh, anybody's been involved in, in Christy's ministry. Here they come. Here they come. Thank you, Christy. So Christy, did, yes, so we all know that Christy's going to be here this morning, but she actually didn't know exactly why. Right. Right. So 16 years ago, you uh, founded a ministry called Veronica's Voice. Veronica's Voice helps uh, women who are sexually exploited leave the sex trade, receive rehabilitation, training, spiritual guidance for a new future, to be the people God made them to be before whatever happened happened, right? And a, a year ago, you opened a house. Uh, how many gals are living there this morning? Three. Got three gals living there this morning who are receiving this care and uh, so forth to um, become the, the precious person God made them to be. So we wanted to. Aren't we a trio? Um, we want... <laughs> So we wanted to have this morning to celebrate you, to celebrate a year at the Magdalene KC house, and uh, to celebrate what God is doing through you and through your life. And uh, so we're going to have a birthday party for you and for the ministry and for Magdalene House here in the lobby. We also uh, started a 2020 financial challenge. Most of the people here in the room are participating in that. So we want to give a gift to Veronica's Voice to be used for whatever needs the Magdalene House has. So this is a, a gift that we want to give to you, $5,000 for that ministry. 
So thanks, thanks to all of you who are giving to that. I know you have also given gifts above and beyond the 2020 Financial Challenge directly to Veronica's voice. Thank you for that. These are the reasons for the Old Testament laws for mercy and for the forgotten ones. You're feeling it right now. I know when you made the pledge, you were scared, and every time you keep it, you wonder what it's all about. This is what it's all about. Amen? Amen. Amen. Christy, is there anything you want to say about the ministry you do, what you hope God's going to do next? Well, we've started with this one house, and we hope to grow this one home into six or seven more homes. Mm -hmm. Um, We are involved in, like, with starting a social enterprise to put the women to work, give them marketable skills so that they can leave the life and have something better waiting for them. And I just want to thank everyone for their support and for this birthday party. (laughs) This is awesome. That film was just very moving. I had never seen that before. Oh, you've never seen And this chick, this chick, I kept going, what does Garrett want me to say? (laughs) But you did. Yes, you all kept it a secret. Yay! (laughs) Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I want to pray for you. I want you to know that we are with you. God is with you. Uh, This is exactly, um, you know, Jesus was uh, accused of being a friend to uh, folks who were sexually exploited, and he wore that label as a badge of honor. He kind of said, yeah, that's what the Son of Man came to be, and to uh, show a new way. So um, let us pray for Christy and for Veronica's voice. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Christy Childs, for her life redeemed. For our own Jessica, we thank you for this ministry, Lord, that you have empowered for them to do. Thank you, Lord, that we get the opportunity to be a part of it. Because what were we going to do with our lives that mattered more than this? Thank you for saving us by giving us something better to do with ourselves and worship ourselves. Today, Lord, let us celebrate what you have done through the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let us stand together. I thought we'd close the day with the Apostles' Creed. Uh, This is a reminder of who we are and what we're all about. So it's on the screen behind us. Let us say this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Don't forget to sign up for Pathways while you're out there to come learn how to do this together. Let us celebrate. Amen.